Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Josias podcast. My name is Pater Edmund Waldstein, editor of the Josias, and this episode is a lecture that I delivered in Trumau here in Austria to students of the International Theological Institute there. Uh, at the invitation of the Adenauer Forum, my thanks to the Adenauer Forum and to John Hennenfent for the invitation, and to Charles Coulomb for introducing me and moderating the lecture, to which I now turn. Some things are difficult to understand because they are very abstract. Separated from the concrete and sensible realities surrounding us. This is a difficulty that we experience, for example, in the consideration of the most universal predicates. Other things are difficult to understand because they're so exalted, existing on a higher level of perfection than us. This is the difficulty that we find, for example, in thinking about the hierarchy of the angels. Yet other matters are difficult to understand because they're so complicated, involving so many parts and elements and influences that it is difficult to keep them all in our minds at once. For example, the politics of Bosnia and Herzegovina. But there are some things which we find difficult to understand because they are more concrete, lowlier, and simpler than we expect. Our minds fly at once to vague abstractions and lofty ideals, and we suspect complexity and complication when in fact the truth is concrete, close at hand, and simple. This, I think, is the difficulty in understanding rights. Many of the difficulties that people get into in thinking about rights stem from a lack of the patience necessary to begin with the first and most basic notion of rights, which is also the most concrete. Only by patiently considering the most basic and concrete rights the rights that lie, so to speak, at our feet, can we see the order in which the notion of rights can then be extended analogously. The most basic notion of right is, I will argue, the object of justice, or the just thing. Those two mean the same, the object of justice and the just thing. It's two ways of saying the same thing. And I will presently explain why, but before doing so, I will say a few words about a debate that shows the importance of this question, but also the difficulty uh, involved in understanding uh, the answer to the question, as it were. It's a debate that's taken place over the past 70 years or so, really a continuation of a much longer debate, but I'm going to turn first to the past 70 years. The political system that has been dominant in many parts of the world since the 19th century is liberalism. Liberalism traces its philosophical influences back to the Enlightenment thinkers of the 17th century, especially to the English and Scottish Enlightenment. But in the decades following the French Revolution, it was moderate supporters of the ideals of the revolution 
in continental Europe who popularized the term liberalism and formed liberalism as a powerful political movement. Now, from the first, liberalism has had many critics from many different traditions. Of particular interest to me, of course, are those who criticize liberalism from traditions that I think are sound traditions. Namely, first of all, the apostolic tradition of the Catholic Church. But secondly, the Socratic tradition of political philosophy, the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, the deepest insights of which were taken over and developed by the fathers and doctors of the church. And finally, the tradition of the Roman jurists, which owed much to the Socratic tradition, but worked out its implications for the practical pursuit of justice in human communities. And I want now to turn to the second of these traditions, to the Socratic tradition of political philosophy, and to two thinkers who have criticized liberalism from within that Socratic tradition uh, in recent decades. And the two thinkers are uh, Leo Strauss, who was born in 1899 and died in 1973. He was a German Jewish philosopher who emigrated to the United States. And the second is Alastair McIntyre born in 1929, but still in remarkable vigor, uh, despite his old age. He's a Scottish philosopher who also emigrated to the United States and currently lives in South Bend, Indiana, of all places. <laughs> and he's now a Catholic, as well as being an Aristotelian. Both of these thinkers criticized the role that writes play in liberal theory and practice. In his 1953 masterpiece, Natural Right and History, I brought it along for you to, to look at, you can pass it around. Strauss argued that liberalism can be defined by the role that it gives to rights. Quote, now from this book, if we may call liberalism that political doctrine which regards as the fundamental political fact the rights as distinguished from the duties of man and which identifies the function of the state with the protection or the safeguarding of those rights, we must say that the founder of liberalism was Hobbes, end quote. Strauss then goes on to contrast the centrality of rights in the tradition of politics inaugurated by Hobbes with what he sees as the marginality of rights in the Socratic tradition of political philosophy. Now, again, a quote from Strauss, a somewhat longer quote. The pre-modern natural law doctrines taught the duties of man. If they paid any attention at all to his rights, they conceived of them as essentially derivative from his duties. As has frequently been observed, in the course of the 17th and 18th centuries, a much greater emphasis was put on rights than ever had been done before. One may speak of a shift of emphasis from natural duties to natural rights. The fundamental change from an orientation by natural duties 
to an orientation by natural rights finds its clearest and most telling expression in the teaching of Hobbes, who squarely made an unconditional natural right the basis of all natural duties, the duties being therefore only conditional. The profound change under consideration can be traced directly to Hobbes's concern with a human guarantee for the actualization of the right social order or to his realistic intention. The actualization of a social order that is defined in terms of man's duties is necessarily uncertain and even improbable. Such an order may well appear to be utopian. Quite different is the case of a social order that is defined in terms of the rights of man. For the rights in question express and are meant to express something that everyone actually desires anyway. They hallow everyone's self-interest as everyone sees it or can easily be brought to see it. Men can more safely be depended upon to fight for their rights than to fulfill their duties. In the words of Burke, the little catechism of the rights of men is soon learned and the inferences are in the passions. End of this quote from Strauss, which ends with a quote from Burke, Edmund Burke. Now, Strauss goes on to argue that the consequence of this shift in, is modern individualism. The ancients, by which he means Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero, not, for example, Lucretius, um, had been convinced that man can only reach his telos as part of a city, and that the common good of the city is therefore teleologically prior to the private good of the individual man. Man's duties towards the city and his fellow citizens are, as a consequence, prior to any claim of rights against the city or his fellow citizens. But for liberalism, the individual is prior to the community. The community is established for the sake of defending the individual's rights. Any rights of the state or the sovereign are derivative from the rights of the individual, as are any duties the individual may have toward the state or the sovereign. This individualism of liberalism remains even when its notion of rights goes through great changes. Hobbes and Locke derived rights from nature. Modern liberals, however, and now I quote Strauss again, became impatient of the absolute limits to diversity or individuality that are imposed even by the most liberal version of natural right. They had to make a choice between natural right and the uninhibited cultivation of individuality. They chose the latter. This choice of individuality is often taken in the name of tolerance, which is a quality on which liberals pride themselves. But the result is intolerance. Quote again from Strauss. Liberal relativism has its roots in the natural right tradition of tolerance, coming from, especially from Locke, the, uh, of course, Hobbes's great successor or in the notion that everyone has a natural right to the pursuit of happiness as he understands happiness. But in itself, 
it is a seminary of intolerance, end quote from Strauss. The reason for this, and here I'm slightly modifying Strauss's argument to make it better, I think, <laughs> is that radical individualism sees itself threatened by ways of thinking or living that assume that there is some more objective measure for human life than individual choice. Thus, the securing of the right of each one to choose his own final end necessitates vigorous attacks on anyone who calls such a right into question. And we can see this very clearly today, for example, in the LGBTQ plus movement, which attacks and denounces anyone who refuses to agree that homosexual perversion is good for homosexuals or that transvestites are women. Now I turn to the second of the two critics of liberalism, namely Alistair McIntyre. McIntyre is often thought of as being very far from Strauss. And this is because McIntyre is in some sense a man of the left, a leftist, whereas Strauss uh, was definitely a man of the right wing of the political spectrum um, and was understood as such. But more, that's kind of a superficial reason why people think of McIntyre and Strauss as very different thinkers, but a more profound reason is that Strauss is very vehemently against historicism, at least exoterically. Um, what his secret thoughts on this are is a little bit less clear, but his, his exoteric teaching for the common masses like us is that historicism is not true. Whereas McIntyre is often seen as being an historicist. And he uses, McIntyre uses a lot of historicist language. But I think that this appearance of a great divergence between Strauss and McIntyre is actually mostly an illusion. They're much closer than appears at first glance. And especially on this matter, their critique of liberalism and the role that rights play in liberalism, on this matter, Strauss and McIntyre are very close. In his 1981 book, After Virtue, I also brought this one for you. Does it have something to do with your hand? So in his 1981 book, After Virtue, McIntyre argues that modern moral and political philosophy is an incoherent collection of concepts divorced from their original context in societies which saw their goal in leading human beings as they are in their untutored state, slaves of their passions, to a perfected state in which they reach the telos of their essential nature through the virtues that perfect that nature. The concepts of morality that are still used by modern moral philosophy first derive originally from that older context, but they don't make any sense in their new context. In such older societies, and now I quote McIntyre, the individual is identified and constituted in and through certain of his or her roles, those roles which bind the individual to the communities in and through which alone specifically human goods are, be, are to be attained. 
I confront the world as a member of this family, this household, this clan, this tribe, this city, this nation, this kingdom. End quote. In such non-individualistic societies, justice is a matter of what is owed to others on account of my and their role in society. Rights are not important, although McIntyre recognizes that they exist as conferred by positive law or custom on specified classes of person. But in modern society, rights take on a new importance and a new concept of universal rights is developed, alleged to belong to human beings as such, and as providing reasons for uh, not interfering with them in their pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. These kinds of rights McIntyre takes to be a moral fiction, invented to try to make sense of a morally incoherent society. Quote, this is one of the most famous passages of McIntyre's uh, After Virtue. It would, of course, be a little odd that there should be such rights attaching to human beings simply qua human beings in light of the fact that there is no expression in any ancient or medieval language correctly translated by our expression a right until the close of the Middle Ages. The concept lacks any means of expression in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, or Arabic, classical or medieval before about 1400, let alone in Old English, or in Japanese even as late as the mid-19th century. From this, it does not, of course, follow that there are no natural or human rights. It only follows that no one could have known that there were. And this at least raises certain questions. But we do not need to be distracted into answering them, for the truth is plain. There are no such rights. And belief in them is one with belief in witches and in unicorns. The best reason for asserting so bluntly that there are no such rights is indeed of precisely the same type as the best reason which we possess for asserting that there are no witches and the best reason which we possess for asserting that there are no unicorns. Every attempt to give good reasons for believing that there are such rights has failed." End quote. McIntyre is thus even more critical of the liberal idea of rights than Strauss. The critique of, liberal, of the liberal conception of rights that we find in Strauss and in McIntyre has been questioned by a number of writers who have pointed to the role that the notion of rights did in fact play in medieval thought, and even to some extent in the thought of the Roman jurists. The historian Brian Tierney sought to show that the idea of rights, in fact, had deep roots in medieval jurisprudence and theology. Far from being contrary to older understandings of human morality, Tierney argues, uh, the concept of natural right is correlative to the concept of natural law. The Latin word jus, according to Tierney, could mean an objective moral order or a moral precept, or finally, it could also mean a moral faculty or power, a right, in the modern sense. And these three meanings are not only compatible, they are the same thing viewed from different perspectives. And now a quote from Brian Tierney. I didn't bring you Brian Tierney's book because I think it's mostly a bad book, but 
Um, <laughs> there are a few things that he says that are true. Um, here's the quote from him. The various senses of use are not contradictory concepts. Rather, they are correlative. In considering Aquinas and the canonists, we suggested that the concept the concepts of use as objective right order and as moral or legal precept are not intrinsically incompatible with another. Now we can add that both concepts are compatible with the idea of individual rights. We can define the relationship of parents and children in, term of an, in terms of an objectively right order. Or we can define it in terms of moral precept, honor thy father and thy mother. But we could also define the same relationship by saying that parents have a right to the respect of their children. As for individual rights and jus naturale, considered as meaning what is objectively right, to affirm a right ordering of human relationships is to imply a structure of rights and duties. In propounding a system of jurisprudence, one can emphasize either the objective pattern of relationships or the implied rights and duties of persons to one another. And then again, one can focus on either the rights or the duties. The emphasis can fall in different ways depending on social and economic and political circumstances and on the temperament of the particular author. It will probably have little to do with this abstract metaphysics. The resulting... Uh, Works may be very different in tone and spirit, but the different emphases do not necessarily imply logical contradiction." End quote from Tierney. The distinctions that Tierney raises here between different senses of the Latin word use, which we can translate in some contexts as right, and between objective use and subjective use are very important but I think that Tierney slightly misunderstands these distinctions. A similar, but in my opinion, a much stronger argument has recently been advanced by the American theologian Dominic Legg of the Order of Preachers. Legg argues that contrary to McIntyre's assertion that there was no concept of subjective rights before the 14th century, St. Thomas Aquinas himself has such a concept of subjective rights. Nevertheless, Legg argues that there was an important shift between St. Thomas and later scholastics, such as William of Ockham, and even later scholastics, such as Francisco Suarez, and the many modern neo-scholastics influenced by Suarez. For St. Thomas, quote now from Father Legg, law and justice, and consequently any theory of natural rights, should always be understood in terms of an overarching order to the good. This dimension was, however, eclipsed by Occam and Suarez, who in their respective accounts of law, justice, and right, put more emphasis on the will of the lawgiver, human or divine. I think that there is something true about all of the positions that I've just mentioned the positions of Strauss and McIntyre, but also of Tierney and Legg, although Tierney less than the other three. 
I think Strauss's insight into the function of rights in modern political philosophy and practice is true. There is indeed something new about the predominance of rights in modernity. And it is indeed connected to modern moral pessimism about man's achieving perfection as a common good. And it is therefore bound up with modern individualism. McIntyre's arguments confirm these insights of Strauss. But I also agree with Tierney and Legge that the history of the concept of right is not quite as simple as Strauss and McIntyre suggest. And particularly, I agree with Legge that there is a concept of subjective rights in St. Thomas. And that the most important shift is that from a view that sees rights as integrated into an overarching order to the good to one that sees them more in terms of arbitrary will. On the other hand, I think that all of these accounts miss something. I think that Strauss's account misses how the notion of objective right is a middle term between duty and subjective right. That is, the shift that he correctly identifies is not just a shift from a primacy of duty to a primacy of right, but also a shift of priority between two senses of right or use. Leg, for his part, I think slightly misunderstands the notion of objective right and its relation to law, and therefore does not see how important shifts in the order between objective and subjective right are key to the shift that he correctly identifies between right understanding as part of an overarching order to the good and right not so understood. Okay, maybe this all sounds now like the politics of Bosnia and Herzegovina, too complicated, too many elements. So now let's turn to the question, what is right? At the beginning of this lecture, I said that the most basic notion of right is the object of justice or the just thing. And I'm almost ready now to explain what that means. But an essential preliminary to understanding the object of justice is to understand justice. So I'll first indicate very briefly some things about justice and its relation to law and to the common good. Father Legg, in the paper I've already cited, points out that St. Thomas, uh, Thomas's teaching on justice connects justice to a wise understanding of the good. He points to the following text from the Prima Pars of the Summa, quote, Since the object of the will is the good as understood, God cannot will anything other than what conforms to the ratio. Ratio, as you know, has many meanings. Here, probably, you could translate it with the rational order. God cannot will anything other than what conforms to the ratio of his wisdom. For the ratio of his wisdom is, as it were, the law of justice, lex justitiae, in accord with which his will is right, recta, and just, justa. Hence God does justly whatever he does in accord with his will, just as we ourselves do justly whatever we do in accord with the law. But we act in accord with a law that is given to us by some superior, whereas God is a law for himself. End quote. 
As Father Leg points out, this means that justice follows from a prior wise ordering of things by God, whereby he gives everything its proper goodness, which in various ways tends towards himself as the highest good and last end of all things. The universal common good in which all proper goods participate. Quote again from Father Legg. For Aquinas, law is not primarily the expression of God's will, but rather the wisely ordered plan of creation in God's intellect is like the law that guides the perfectly just willing of God. Law is an expression of reason, an ordering according to reason, even in God. And so justice results from rightly willing according to the wise or reasoned ordering of all things to God. St. Thomas teaches that there are different senses of justice. There is general justice, also called legal justice, which is what establishes right order in man's actions toward the common good of society. And then there is particular justice, further divided into commutative and distributive justice, which establishes right order in men's relation among themselves. Particular justice is a particular virtue, but general justice, since it establishes order in view of the common good, includes acts of all the other virtues, and therefore general justice can be called the highest virtue. Quote from St. Thomas. Now it is evident that all who are included in a community stand in relation to that community as parts to a whole while a part as such belongs to a whole, so that whatever is the good of a part can be directed to the good of the whole. It follows, therefore, that the good of any virtue, whether such virtue directs man in relation to himself or in relation to certain other individual persons, is referable to the common good, to which justice, that is, general or legal justice, directs, so that all acts of virtue can pertain to justice insofar as it directs man to the common good, end quote. Now, recall that in the passage from the Prima Pars that I quoted before, Thomas says that the ratio of God's wisdom is like a law of justice. Law is what determines what is truly for the common good. Hence, general justice is also called legal justice. In subjects, it consists in obeying the law. And in rulers, it exists in laying down the law in a wise manner so as to help the whole community achieve its good. St. Thomas defines law as, quote, an ordering, ordinatio, by reason, directed toward the common good, made by the one who is in charge of the community and promulgated. Of particular importance for us are reason and the common good. Law is something reasonable, something based on understanding of the good. And the good in question is the common good, a common end, communicable to many. A noble good, a bonum honestum, not an instrumental good. Quote again from uh, St. Thomas. As has been explained... By virtue of the fact that law is a rule and measure, it has to do with the principle of human acts. 
Now, just as reason is the principle of human acts, so too within reason itself there is something which is the principle with respect to everything else. Hence, this must be what law is chiefly and especially concerned with. Now, in actions which practical reason is concerned with, the first principle is the ultimate end. A beautiful paradox. Right? Principle means beginning. The first beginning is the last end. Right? Mary, Queen of Scots, what did she have, Charles, inscribed on her tombstone? In my end is my beginning. Hence, this must be what law is chiefly and especially concerned with. Now, in actions which practical reason is concerned with, the first principle is the ultimate end. But as was established above, the ultimate end of human life is happiness or beatitude. Hence, law must have to do mainly with an ordering that leads to happiness. Again, since every part is ordered towards its whole in the way that what is incomplete, imperfectum, is ordered toward what is complete, perfectum. And since a man is part of a complete community, a societas perfecta, law must properly be concerned with the ordering that leads to communal happiness, felicitatem communem. Hence, in the definition of legal affairs alluded to above, the philosopher makes mention of both happiness and political communion. For in the ethics, he says, the laws we call just are those that effect and conserve happiness and its element within the political community. For, as he puts it in the politics, a city is a complete community. Okay, the, kind of a dense text. But the idea here is that the common good of a complete human community is not something instrumental to the private goods of the citizens of that community, the parts of that community. It's not just something that helps each person achieve what he thinks is happiness, but the common good of the community is happiness, which is a common good of all the members of the community, and a greater good than any particular good of any individual in the community. And this is what Leo Strauss meant in the text I already cited about the community in the Socratic tradition being prior to the individual, meaning the common good of the community is prior to the proper good of the individual. Okay, now I turn finally to right. The English word right is derived from the Indo-European root reg, meaning straight, and hence to move in a straight line, to lead straight, to put right, to rule. And right the English word right is etymologically equivalent to the Latin word recte, right, or rectitudo, rightness. But in our context, right has a different meaning. Right also translates another Latin word, namely ius, which is related to justitia, justice. And use, as I've already suggested, has a variety of analogically related meanings. The primary meaning is the object of justice, the just thing. Now, many modern writers have misunderstood what is meant by the object of justice or objective right. 
because they assume it means something very lofty and universal, such as an objective moral order, right in the sense of rectitudo, right instead of wrong. This is the mistake that Tierney makes. Um, not in, he, he goes kind of back and forth in his book between different senses of objective right, as to a lesser extent as Father Leg. And use can certainly be used to mean an objective order of right. I don't deny that. But this is not what is primarily meant by use, and it particularly not what is meant by objective use or use as the object of justice. The object of justice is something very concrete. It is something so concrete, particular, and banal that at first glance it seems hardly worth mentioning. This is the problem that I mentioned at the beginning of my lecture. Some things are so obvious that nobody understands them. The virtue of justice is the firm will to give to each their due. Thus, an object of justice is what is due, the thing or action due to another person, what I owe another person, that is use. Thus, an objective right is nothing more than a thing or an action. For example, a fair share of the spoils of battle is due to Achilles. It is his use, his right. And if he doesn't get it, he'll get mad at Agamemnon. Or the money is due to the baker who gives me a loaf of bread. The money is his use, his right. Or the cantor's singing of an antiphon is due to the cathedral chapter which has appointed him. The singing of the antiphon is the chapter's objective right, its use, which it can demand from the cantor. The spoils, the money, and the singing are themselves the objective rights. That is, it is not primarily that Achilles has a right to the spoils, but rather the spoils are his right. Now what determines what is due to another? Justice. But as we saw, justice is connected to a sapiential order to the good. And it is, above all, law that lays down what is just, what is ordered to the good. The lex justitiae, as Thomas puts it in the Prima Pars, the law of justice. That is, law makes a certain distribution of things. Agamemnon, right, distributing the spoils of battle, right, supposedly for the common good but really because Agamemnon is a tyrant for his private good. A distribution of things, that is a distribution of rights, of objective rights. This distribution of things is made in the first place by God's eternal law, with a view to the universal common good of all things, both the intrinsic common good of creation, the harmonious order and peace of creation, and the extrinsic common good, which is God himself, the object of happiness. In the second place, the distribution of things is made by human custom and human law 
for the sake of the common good of temporal happiness and peace. The highest uh, temporal good. Law is the ratio juris, as St. Thomas says, the reason of right, or the reason for right. That is, the rational order that determines what is right is law. It gives the reason why something is due to someone else. Father Lake unfortunately mistranslates this passage of St. Thomas to say law is a kind of expression of use. There, obviously, he's misunderstanding use as this, in the sense of a kind of objective order of what is right. But what St. Thomas is, says is not law is an expression of use, but basically the opposite. Use is an expression of law. Law is the ratio juris, the reason of use, and therefore use expresses the wisdom that is embodied in the law, the sapiential wisdom of an order to the good. Thus, in St. Thomas's conception, everything goes back to wisdom about the common good and what serves it. So, for example, the distribution of private property in the city will be regulated with a view to what serves the common good of the city. Therefore, the law can put limits on the acquisition of wealth if it judges that too great an acquisition damages social peace. Or it can forbid certain kinds of contracts or loans that are judged to be prejudicial to civic friendship. Now, the modern sense of right as a moral power, that is, what someone ought to be allowed to do without interference, was originally an analogical extension of the concept of use in the sense of the just thing. And as Father Lake shows, this analogical extension is present already in St. Thomas. St. Thomas already uses this sense of use as a subjective power over a thing. It meant that if a thing is one's right, one's use in the objective sense, then one has a subjective moral power over the thing. That is, one can do certain things to or with the thing, uh, and it would be unjust for someone to prevent you from doing them. For example, if a loaf of bread is my use, then I have the use to eat the bread. It is my right to eat the bread. That is, I have a subjective power to eat the bread, and no one can say, hey, don't do that. It's my right. I bought the bread. I can eat it. Leave me alone. <laughs> right. Now, there's no prob- I have no problem with this analogical extension of the word use. There's, it's not objectionable in itself to have this notion of a subjective power. I think it's something real. Such moral powers have some foundation in reality. But in the course of this analogical extension, a fatal reversal can take place. Namely, instead of seeing objective use as the prime analogate and uh, the subjective power as an analogical extension, Suarez and other late scholastics, and even before him, uh, William of Ockham, reverse the order. So they say the subjective power is primary. I have, first of all, subjective power over the bread. And then because of that subjective power over the bread, the bread is also my objective use. That is, the baker has to give me the bread. 
Um, Henri Grenier, the great uh, Laval School Thomist, explains why this is a problem very concisely, so I'm going to quote what he says. If objective right is understood as right in the strict sense, it follows that subjective right, that is, right as a power, is measured by the just thing, according to conformity to law. Moreover, since law is an ordinance for the common good, it follows that the whole juridical order, that is the whole order of rights, all the rights taken together, is directed to the common good. But if subjective right is understood as right in the primary, strict, and formal meaning of the term, it follows that the juridical order consists in a certain autonomy, independence, and liberty. For subjective right is not measured by the just thing, but the just thing is measured by the inviolable faculty, which is a certain liberty. Right? I have the liberty to do what I want with the bread. So if that's right in the primary sense, then liberty takes on a certain primacy. Therefore, according to moderns, the juridical order is directed to liberty rather than the common good. This gives rise to errors among moderns who speak of liberty of speech, liberty of worship, economic liberty, economic liberalism, without any consideration of their relation to the common good. End quote from Grenier. Here we can see why Strauss is right that the primacy of rights in modern politics is essentially liberal. Liberal comes from libertas or liberalitas, right? It's liberal because everything is, is ordered to, liber to liberty as though liberty were the final end rather than the common good. And this leads to an instrumental understanding of the common good. For liberals, the common good is not that in which the members of society find their flourishing and happiness, but rather an order instrumental in bringing about the liberty of all. The true goal is not an actual good, but the maximum freedom for each to determine his good for himself. If tyranny is defined by subordinating the common good to the private good, then the liberal order is a tyranny in which everyone is a tyrant. The end. Thank you.